and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you've had a fabulous week. Who here picked up on my mistake last pod? I mentioned in the first few episodes that I often say things wrong, the wrong word to describe something. Sometimes I make up a word without realizing it. For example, spread like wildflower versus spread like wildfire. Um, instead of, uh, sorry, for example, spread like wildflowers or spread like wildfire. Cold saw versus cold saw. Ice cream versus ice cream, pavers versus pavers. I only know this because of my awesome husband and friends who start laughing so loud or tease me when they hear one of them. So last week we had one of those. I said posterior instead of postural for POTS. It's meant to be postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. So if you ever hear me say anything like this, you have full permission to send me a DM or pop it in the challenges that change us because I have no idea that I've done it. I actually have no idea until someone points it out. So help me out and let me know. These words and phrases that people call Aliisms nearly stopped me from starting this podcast in the first place. I was so worried about what you would all think of me when you heard them. So thank you for being so forgiving. I invite you to laugh and let me know and always point it out. I appreciate it so much. Okay, let's get into this episode with Dan Bentley. Dan Bentley uses his mental illness as his superpower. His origin story starts like many before him, a small town country kid who never quite fitted in, a feeling that followed him for decades and eventually led him to developing a number of mental health conditions, depression, severe social anxiety and agoraphobia. He spent most of his 20s feeling locked in a cage until he finally sought help. He always had this strong belief that there was so much more to life and that he didn't accept that this was his fate. I don't want to give away his incredible story, so I'm just going to give you a sneaky little outline. We start by discussing his agoraphobia and his panic attacks. We then move into some of the things Dan did to get help, and he walks us through his incredible trip to Alaska and his trek of the Kokoda Trail which is really remarkable after you hear how scared he was in his 20s. He could barely leave his room. Dan has made it a mission in his life to push boundaries of what he is capable of despite living with mental illness. For those that are hearing the word agoraphobia for the first time, let me give you a little insight into it. The Mayo Clinic defines agoraphobia as a type of anxiety disorder where you fear or avoid places or situations that might cause you panic and make you feel trapped, helpless, and embarrassed. You fear an actual or anticipated situation, such as being on public transport, being in open or enclosed spaces, standing in line, being in a crowd. 
The anxiety is caused by fear that there is no easy way to escape or get help if the anxiety intensifies. Most people who have agoraphobia develop it after having one or more panic attacks, which causes them to worry about having another panic attack and they avoid places where it might happen again. People with agoraphobia often have a hard time feeling safe in any public place, especially where crowds gather. If you're listening to this and going, oh, that sounds really familiar to what my experience is, or you've experienced severe and reoccurring anxiety, such as several panic attacks, and that you're so worried about doing certain activities that it affects how you live your life, then this is a time that you should reach out to your doctor. This episode starts slow and we build into a peak. I think you guys are going to take so much away from this episode. This is just a trigger warning for this episode. We do cover the topics of depression, social anxiety, and agoraphobia. So this may or may not be the right episode for you this week. If it's not, we will see you next Monday. And also remember that we do have the lifeline number 131114. Alrighty, everyone, I'd really love to introduce you to Dan today. Thank you, Dan, for coming on to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Dan, I love to start each podcast with a question and it is, what animal best describes you and what is it about that animal that makes you say that? I had to think about this for a while. I went for a a wolf. Wolf's a a pack animal, but there's also that one lone wolf that goes out and does its own thing. I've always felt like a bit of a loner, a bit of a lone wolf, you know, and they live in the, the mountains and, you know, in the cold locations. And I kind of really love that sort of location. But when they're at in a pack, they're like all together and really strong. So I feel that when I'm surrounded by people, I'm really strong and really focused and can get really things done. But I'm also very capable of going off and doing my own thing alone. And it'll be really interesting when we start to unpack today. I would love to look at that a little bit more around that group, like when you're with other people, because a lot of our conversation is going to be about you being on your own. So we might like actually come back to that a little bit throughout the interview. Yeah, that sounds good. And Dan, you're currently in media, right? Yeah, I'm a video editor slash photographer slash multimedia sort of person and I run my own business and and have for the past three years. Yeah. What got you into that in the first place? Uh, Well, I was always a bit of an artist sort of person throughout high school and then I was actually going to be a chef. You actually look like a chef. (laughs) Do you know what you got on? You kind of have that appearance about you. I used to love food but I never used to, you know, when I grew up, I grew up in a small country town and you were either like on the farm or you're a mechanic kind of thing. So I was like, no, I want to be a chef. And then I think it was like year 11 or 12, my art teacher, who was like really loved my style and my creativity, she was like, yeah, I found this course for you. You you should do this. And it was like multimedia. So I did that for two years and then sort of that's kind of where I fell. So yeah, I've been doing it for 20 years now kind of thing. And I can imagine in that industry in particular, there would be so much change, like what you've seen in the last 20 years. Yeah, absolutely. Like the technology has, has, has gone crazy and, you know, the, the computing technology has just gotten so much better. Cameras particularly now, like it's so so much easier to be a, a filmmaker now because, you know, you, you can buy a camera for fairly cheap and if you've got the right editing skills, you can kind of, you know, do whatever you want really. You don't have to be in a studio and, you know, making big budget films, you can sort of find your niche doing what you love. Podcast is no different. If people could see this office, (laughs) do you know what I mean? You just get a little microphone and headset. But does that mean for you in, I guess, for your business that you're finding that a lot of individuals are going out and doing it on their own now and not necessarily searching for someone to come in and do it? Yeah, I've sort of seen that there's a lot of the one person in the office that knows how to use a camera 
and then often they'll do something and it turns out to be a bit dodgy so they'll have to call in someone like me and sort of fix the problem so often it'll be yeah rather than hiring someone which is you know a valid point if you don't want to hire someone someone in the office has generally got a camera that can shoot they don't really know how to edit or they don't know how to do graphic design really but they know how to use the software often they'll they'll create something that's kind of okay but then someone up the top like the ceo will look at it and go yeah this is not you know this is really not professional quality so they'll get someone like me in to sort of tidy up that and then eventually you, you get your foot in the door and it's like oh we'll use dan he's you know we've used him before so it's a way to find multiple clients is is being sort of the, the guy that can fix something up you know and then because i work i basically work alone i don't have overheads and you know i've got a lot of free time in terms of you know i can jump clients pretty quickly because i don't have a huge sort of client list so but yeah, yeah there, there's certainly a few people like me out there who sort of go it alone and then you know if you do a bigger project then you can hire some people to help you out and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, I'm actually looking for someone, just so you yeah. know. Yes, in the video space. I have used someone before and I just, I absolutely agree. It, I've tried to do it myself and the amount of time it takes me, it's ridiculous. I don't even know why I'm spending my time on it. I can't use a computer. Yes, I might be able to work out how to do a bodge job, but it's not professional and it's more expensive. Like my time yeah. costs X and if I'm spending it trying to work out the computer, that's time I'm not in my genius lane. So I think it takes, I don't know for others, I don't want to speak for others, but for me it takes me a long time to actually go, ah, oh, maybe this is the time I should outsource. <laughs> yeah, like I find a lot of the things that I do, like I often I'll embed myself within a company for, for six to 12 months and then I'll be like their, their go-to person. And I'll find that the best ideas often come when I'm working in the office because they'll see me and go, oh, that's right, we've got that capability now. And yes. you can just sort of have those conversations on the fly and I can pitch things to them rather than them thinking about how can we do a video, you know, that's not really their job. Their job is to focus on like HR or, or yes. education or something, whereas if I can come in there and go, okay, you guys, um, you know, needing to do some HR stuff, why don't we do a series of videos on past employees or, you Great. Know, yeah, it's my job to come up with those ideas. Kind of the strategy. Yeah. Yeah, I need you in my life. <laughs> you might have just got a client. <laughs> that sounds good. How do people find you though? If there's someone out there like me that's been looking for ages, how would they find you? Uh, my website is danbentleymedia.com. I don't use the website that often. It's just a placehold basically to say, hey, yeah. this is the kind of stuff that I do. I'm on Instagram occasionally uploading some of the stuff that I do. But generally, yeah, if you just head to my website, there's a, an email link and stuff in there. It's always great, isn't it, when you've got that strong word of mouth and that strong brand that you don't need advertising. It makes it a lot easier. Yeah. But, yeah, and then when people say, how do we find you? It's like, oh, good question. Let me think, how do people find me? <laughs> it's also like, do I want to be found? Do I want new clients? Yeah. You know, I'm quite happy in my niche right now. I don't want to yeah. add extra pressure. But then occasionally I'll meet a client through someone else and then I'm like, I really want to work with them. Like through a podcast? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, if I want to go into other avenues, it's certainly a way to meet, you know, diverse people or people who work on projects that I am interested in genuinely. So Yeah, yeah. And I guess, Dan, like we have brought you on today. It's a topic that we have touched on. We've looked at anxiety. We've looked at depression in this podcast. But we haven't looked at agoraphobia, which is something that you've experienced in your life. Are you able to tell us a little bit about what that word actually means for you? Yeah, sure. So I, I didn't really know what this 
word was. Um, and I generally just had anxiety and depression for most of my sort of 20s. But it's it's when you get anxious and depressed to the level where you don't leave the house, you can't leave the house, you're afraid to have anyone come and visit you, you know, afraid to leave your bedroom even sometimes, you know, it becomes hard to uh, open the door to, to go and get the mail or go and get groceries or, you know, anything outside of your small little bubble of comfort, it becomes really impossible to do. Yeah, so I, that was the case for me, I think, when I was in my early 20s. It didn't last for, for long, but it was my anxiety had built up to the level where, yeah, I, I couldn't leave the house. You know, I struggled to go to work and, yeah, it just became me in this little box for, you know, until I got out eventually. I'm just listening to you thinking how hard that must have been on your own. There's a fear that sits behind that, isn't it, of what could actually go wrong? Is that right? It's a weird thing. If anyone's ever had a panic attack, it's like, you know, you get hot and flustered and you feel sick. For me personally anyway, that's that's how a panic attack looks. I guess you, you forget to breathe and you just everything feels like it's coming at you really quickly and that's what it would feel like when something came up. So if I was at home and then someone said, hey, can I come around, that instant effect would, you know, would come in place and I would feel sick straight away and then when they'd get here, I would, you know, I would have to say, sorry, man, I, I can't, can't hang out today. Yeah. And going to work would be, luckily I worked doing night shift at the time so I didn't really have to interact with people. It was just, you know, working at cold stacking shelves. But you know, get, getting to that work was, you know, a nightmare. And then, you know, I'd put my headphones in and just kind of do my job trying to get through each day. And yeah, there is a genuine fear there that, that you're going to freak out or maybe pass out or faint or just lay on the ground shaking in convulsions or something. It's it's a real fear of the unknown, yeah. but it, it physically physically affects your body as well as your mind. And we're definitely going to unpack this a lot more throughout this episode, but I guess a really nice place to start here might be around how did it first show up in your world? Like how old were you? What did you notice first? I'd have to say, so I moved to Brisbane in my mid early 20s from Adelaide. So I moved up here alone to try and, I, I don't know, got trying to start my life, I guess. Like I was really depressed when I was younger. And then my moving up here was kind of like, okay, I'll I'll, I'll see what I can do if I can change the location. And I guess life wasn't really going the way I wanted it to up here. And eventually, I just any time I'd leave the house, I would just feel anxious. I, you know, really wouldn't like to be in public, going to the shops, you know, the supermarket or your local um, shopping mall. Just, I just felt this real uneasy feeling all the time. Yeah, and eventually, I, I you know, to try and deal with that, I would, you know, drink after work and, and try to sort of numb that feeling and it kind of worked for a bit. But then I had one night out, I remember I was in a cab on the way to going out and I just completely freaked out. Like I just started really getting anxious and nervous and I had to jump out of the cab and walk home and kind of stopped going out after that because I just was every time I'd leave the house, it slowly built up to the stage where I couldn't leave the house without, you know, having having a, a couple of packs of chewing gum or some something to chew on to sort of calm my nerves. Yeah, and it's the thing with phobias, right? Like they just get a, they get a mind of their own and the more you fear, the bigger the phobia becomes and you can know that perhaps it's growing in size but it doesn't stop it, don't you reckon? 
Yeah, yeah. Like it, it becomes a loop, like a, a self-repeating loop where you stay at home and then it happens again. So then that, that reinforces the fact that you have to stay at home. And then if something does happen when you leave the house, then it's that's proof that, okay, I, I have to stay at home. Yeah. And so you said that it started like you had depression at an early age and then it kind of built into anxiety, which grew up into agoraphobia. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that depression? Was that from a, you said from a young age? Yeah, I, I guess I grew up in a really small town in the middle of the country in South Australia. And I was the only person my own age, basically, from primary school. I went to a different high school. I felt like a bit of an outcast, as you know, most, you know, a lot of people do. And that feeling, I guess, continued through, I guess, university. Like I just always had that feeling that I didn't fit in or I didn't belong somewhere. Was there something that made you feel like that, or it just it just started to grow with inside you? Like, did situations happen or? No, I think it was just circumstantial. You know, I was the out-of-town kid in a, another town, basically, going to high school. So, automatically there, I didn't feel like I was one of everyone else. Yeah. You know, I, I wasn't a farm kid. I didn't grow up in that town. So, never really felt like I was one of the boys or, you know, one of the, the group. Didn't play footy like everyone else. I was kind of, yeah. you know, on the edge there. It's not that I didn't have friends. It's just I didn't have that feeling of belonging there. It just felt like yeah. I was I was meant to be somewhere else. Uh, and then when I moved to the city to go to uni, I still carried that feeling with me, I guess, because I was I was a country kid living in the city, and I kind of I, I think I let that follow me. It was like it, it's not real, but it's for me it was. It was that feeling that I didn't quite belong, and then yeah, that just followed me wherever I went, and it even followed me when I went to, to move to Brisbane because I was. You know, obviously it was going to follow me because... That's what you had associated yourself. That was kind of the story that you'd, yeah. Yeah, that was the picture I built of myself was that, okay, if I don't fit in, I'm going to be the guy that doesn't fit in. I'm going to be a bit quirky or a bit weird and that that just followed me around. Yeah. And did you talk to anyone about this at the time? No. Uh, When I was younger, no, it wasn't even a thought to talk to anyone. It was just, I'm just a bit of a miserable kid or, you know, I just don't fit in. Do you think people, if I spoke to people around you at that time, do you think they would have noticed? Oh, no. No, I've, yeah. I've since like it's been a long time now and I've since talked to people and 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 had told them what I was going through and they were like, oh, wouldn't have even known, you know, like you hide things well mm. and you fake that you're one of the group really well because I thought you were, you know, fine. Like everyone assumed that I was good and then funnily enough, Talking to some of my old high school friends, a lot of them said the same thing about themselves, about I wasn't really that happy in high school or wasn't that happy, you know, in my 20s. My assumption was that I'm going through this school as a complete loner. No one likes yeah. me. You know, I, I don't really matter kind of thing. And we will come to the next chapter, but just on that, is there something now when you look back that could have changed that trajectory? Like when you think back to that high school, do you think if you'd spoken about it or if someone had asked you more questions, do you think it could have changed that feeling that you had, that that feeling of not belonging? I don't think so. I, I think it was so ingrained in me that I, I look different, I grew up somewhere different. I, I think I just I had shut down the door of I'm never going to fit in here. Yeah. You know, it was just one of those, it's a small town thing and I just didn't think the way that other people were thinking at the time. I I just thought I was so different that there was no point, you know, you couldn't tell me to join the group, I'd still feel like an outsider. 
And it's so interesting then hearing when you talk to your friends back at school that some of them felt that as well. Like that must have been a bit of an eye-opener, was it? Yeah, certainly when – because I went back and sort of dealt with a lot of this sort of stuff and, you know, retouched with a lot of people, particularly on Facebook and, you know, it was it was good at the time to go, oh, hey, you know, remember me? And to hear them say either they're struggling or they've gone through something similar to me was just an eye-opener that you just can't tell what everyone else is going through. Like you can't assume that the popular person is as happy as they look. Mm. And that's the message that I'm hearing loud and clear as you talk. It's like, you know, as you said, other people would may not have even noticed. Like if I went and asked people, they may not even describe this like situation that you're giving us today. And that's that's mind-blowing, isn't it, that we can actually hold a front so well that people can't see what's actually behind that. Yeah, I remember a teacher, one of my favourite teachers back in the day, I'd overheard that he had said to someone, oh, Dan, oh, yeah, he was always a good kid, like always sort of put his head down, got the job done and, and never really complained and just got on with it. Like, he, you know, I, I didn't really have much in terms of I wasn't the loud kid, I wasn't the the muck up, I wasn't the good kid, I was just, uh, you know, I just sort of floated through high school. So to hear one of my teachers say, oh, you know, I was actually quite a good kid and got on with things and never caused any trouble and, and did all right. Like it was, it was kind of like, oh, wow, like I, I was kind of noticed in some sort of manner. Yeah. And so tell us about Brisbane. You've kind of taken us up to there. What happened in Brisbane for you? What unfolded during that time? Uh, so I moved up here with the intention of working in the film industry. It was That was the, the goal, I guess, going back, I think it's almost 20 years now. But when I got here, it was kind of like the dream was, wasn't really real. Like it was, um, it was a lot harder to just walk on set and be, hey, I, I want to be, I want to work in the movies. It felt like I was lied to. I mean, again, it was by myself. Like I'd looked and gone, oh, it's just going to be easy. I'll just apply for a job. I'm qualified. And yeah, and it, and it never really happened. And I eventually got stuck at Coles. Like I was working at, at Coles for probably a good seven years, I think, just stacking shelves. This is after your degree? Yeah, yeah. So I'd moved up thinking I'll get a job up here, but you know, while I was waiting for the job, I'd, I'd stack shelves. And eventually it just became, I, that was just my job. It was just, you know, I just did it night shift, you know, starting at, I think it was uh, 3 a.m. to 8 a.m. every day. It was an enjoyable job, like it paid the bills and, you know, it gave me time to sort of, you know, go up the coast on the weekends and do things like that. But I was just silently sort of fading away. Like there was no dreams anymore. It was just I was in that r- routine of, all right, get up at three and go to work. And, you know, you can't have friends when you work night shift because throughout the day you're sleeping and you, your weekends are kind of skewed because you, you have different weekends to everyone else. So I didn't really mm-hmm. have friends apart from my flatmate. Again, didn't like going out because once the uh, anxiety and the agoraphobia sort of kicked in, it was just home, work, home, work, and there was nothing in between. And so eventually it just it just got really, really hard where I just, you know, I was thinking I was there was something wrong with me. You know, I'd go to the doctor and say, you know, is there something wrong with me? Am I sick? Am I dying? And, you know, and they'd give you pills and they'd say, oh, it's, it's probably just reflux or, you know, something like that. And then you'd not get any better and then it would basically put in your mind that there's definitely something majorly wrong with me yeah so you fully internalized it like that i i'm not okay like there's something wrong with me yep and i I kept saying if only i wasn't this sick my life would be so much better yeah I, i was so frustrated that 
I couldn't have an amazing life. Like I would see people, my family going overseas and I would just think I, I can't do that. Like I, if it wasn't for this sickness I have, I'd be doing great things. I'd be, ha- I'd have the best job and I'd do this and I'd be an amazing, I'd be a star. But it was just sort of grinding away at me that, oh, this is the way my life is. It's just a grind basically. Yeah. And the word I'm thinking of, it's like eating away. You know, yeah. it's like slowly over time just started eating away at you and at your soul and at your your whole sense of being. Yeah. Well, like for, for seven years, I think it was probably where I was just a shell basically, just waiting yeah. waiting for something to happen and nothing nothing did basically. Except that anxiety got a life of its own. Yeah. Lost control. You couldn't do anything. Didn't feel like exercise. Didn't feel like anything. Just, just stay at home watching TV and yeah, alone basically. And so when did you first, you said you reached out to doctors, what made you think that you might need some help or that something was wrong? Like did a situation occur? Was there a trigger or did you just have a sense that things were going south? Um, so eventually I, eventually a friend of mine moved up from Adelaide and thanks to him, he, he sort of arranged a few things and I managed to get a couple of decent jobs. So I, I was kind of getting away from the coals, managed to get a job at a photography studio and then eventually got a job doing more of this media stuff. And I thought, okay, now that I've got this job, things are going to improve. I thought, oh, this is great. Like, you know, the anxiety is going to go away. I'm going to get friends. I've got a bit of money. But nothing really happened. Like the anxiety was still there. I still felt horrible going to work. You know, I'd, I'd have panic attacks going into work. You know, whenever there'd be a new client or a new job, it would rip me up inside. Like I would be thinking I don't want to do this because I'm, I'm a fraud. You know, like there were so many things going through my head that I just thought, no, I'm better just going back to Coles and at least then I only have one person to deal with each day rather than putting myself on the line. Mm. And I just thought I can't do this anymore. Like I can't just keep going in this cycle of getting some uh, opportunities and then having to turn it down because I, I physically can't bring myself to do it. So I just thought, uh, all right, I've got to try something different because it can't go on. So I found out about the free government health plan, the mental health plan. Yeah. I don't know where it came up, but someone had mentioned it. So I thought, all right, it can't be any wrong. Like it can't be any worse than it is now. So I thought I'll, I'll see what this is all about. So went to my GP. They said, okay, it sounds like you're depressed. We can put you on this mental health plan. So I did that and kind of immediately felt somewhat better I felt okay at least I've taken one step to to getting better spoke to a psychologist over you know a period of of weeks and months didn't get better straight away but I kind of knew that it was going to take a while to sort of address the issues but I guess over time things just started to pick up a little bit better like I, I would stop feeling so anxious at work and you know I was able to get my head straight to focus on things that I wanted to do in life, spoke to a lot of people at work and I guess started to open up a bit more about how I was feeling. So the people around me at work knew that I had, you know, I didn't say it was a condition or anything. I just said, oh, I've been dealing with anxiety for so many years and was honest about, you know, I'm taking medication and I'm speaking to people about it. And the more I spoke to people about it, the more better I felt about myself and mm. the more I felt normal, I felt safer, I guess, telling people that I've had issues. It meant that if I rocked up to work and I wasn't feeling great, there'd be a, a level of, oh, okay, like you're okay, just calm down. 
so that's that's what made a difference to me, I guess, at the start was telling people what I was going through. It's so interesting listening to you talk because it's like the more you retracted from society and life, the worse it became and the more fearful you were of people. But once you started being able to slowly, slowly, step by step, integrate back into society, that's when you actually felt like people were there for you. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I know I left my family back in Adelaide when I moved up here, but there was a certain amount of, I think, I didn't want to let my family down in terms of being a, a sick person or being depressed or something like that. Like I didn't want to have that on my shoulder of, uh, you know, they always, I want them to see me as, oh, it's Dan, he's happy, he's, he's great sort of thing. So I guess I never really told my family that what I was going through at the time because every time I'd ring home, it'd be, oh, I'm feeling crap today and, you know, I, I didn't want to be that person to ring up. So when I was able to connect with people around me up here, it felt like I was a bit safer and I felt much more at ease when the people around me directly were there to support me. It's quite incredible listening to you because the part that I'm hearing is there's this strong fight in you. Like there's this part in you that was like, this is not my life. Like this is not the life I want to live. I'm not sure how I'm going to get find another way, but I can really hear that part as you're talking. It's like, I know I'm not going to stay where I'm at. Like this isn't where I'm meant to be. May not know how yet, but I'm prepared to try something. And that takes like, can we just stop for a moment and acknowledge the courage that takes from where you are at? And I don't think we may have even unpacked that enough because I'm sitting here listening and, and hearing about agoraphobia and hearing about the panic attacks, but I know what that can look like for people. But I guess a lot of people wouldn't even know, like we've touched the surface on that. So maybe if we just dive a little deeper into what some of those really dark days look like, and then we can come out and have a look at, well, how did, once we started those steps, then what, you know? So when you think about that, what were the darkest days? What were the darkest moments? Was it the panic attacks? Yeah, like there, there were times where, so for work, a lot of the time for work, even when I had my new job and, you know, I was quite happy there, there were still times where I'd have panic attacks and I'd have to sort of deal with those at the time. I'd have to go into the city to, to do an interview with someone and I'd be waiting outside for half an hour in like sweating, absolutely sweating, just hyperventilating on the side of the road, trying to talk myself into going into this office because the minute I, I step into the elevator, I would feel like I was going to faint or, or throw up or something like that. Don't know why, but it was just this overwhelming feeling of being trapped and, you know, can't breathe kind of thing. So a lot of the time that that would happen where I would just, for no reason, just panic and, you know, I'd have to get to the meeting an hour early so I could prepare myself to, you know, to go into a five-minute meeting or something like that. And I, yeah. I just thought this is ridiculous. And then I'd have to walk home because I wouldn't catch a cab because I was just, I, I couldn't sit in the car with someone else. I would have to be in the open where, you know, I could escape easily or hide easily rather than making some sort of scene. And there were times where I would be in the city or, or somewhere away from home or away from my sort of safe zone where the same thing would happen where I would just all of a sudden my heart would start racing, you know, everything would be moving around me really quickly and I would just feel like throwing up. And the thought of having someone next to me like my boss or a, a colleague, it was horrifying to, to go yeah. somewhere with someone. Like if I was by myself, it was kind of a bit less because I was like, if I have one of these attacks, I can just walk away and deal with it by myself. Whereas if I had someone next to me, they would be asking questions. Are you okay? Like, can I do something for you? Like, I, I didn't want them to panic. 
and I didn't want to make a scene. Well, you have to deal with their reaction and your reaction then. Like you've got double responsibility in that yeah. aspect. Yeah. And I, I don't want to make a fuss. Like I hate making a fuss over things and I hate being the centre of attention. So the thought of having anyone sort of have to stop what they're doing and look at me and, and have to deal with me, just the thought of that would make me panic. You know, it's not even that would ever happen. It's just the thought of that would bring on an attack. So yeah, I'd be having attacks before I'd even thought about, you know, getting in the situation. Yeah, the attack was a, a, the, the thought process of even going into it. Yeah. How often were these attacks showing up in your world? I limited them, I guess. It was mainly like once a week or something like that when I'd have to go and do something outside of my, my normal day. So if, if my normal uh, Monday to Friday was sitting in the office, not very much. I love that you say that, not very much. Once a week is a lot. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. you know isn't it amazing our perspective like for you you're like not very often just once a week but for someone listening they'd be like what that's you know 52 a year oh certainly like if I was having to catch the bus to work for the day or the train or you know if someone looked at me weirdly on the train or or something like that yeah certainly those things not a full-blown attack but it certainly make me question catching the bus to work yeah if ever there was a meeting yeah in another office another client's office that you know, I'd never been there before. Yeah, certainly that would make me anxious if I ever have to take a flight. Like flying for me, even still now, I hate flying. But certainly flying with a boss or flying to a, a work site where I've got a film, all that sort of stuff was always on my my list of you know panic attack sort of uh, no nos. So you know, yeah. I had to deal with those at the time, and I always got through them. But they're always on the checklist of. You know, I'd be quite easier just staying in the office and just doing a, a nothing job, basically. Yeah. Do you remember your first panic attack ever? Like I, I remember there's a few that I've had, like on airplanes or I'm very good at hiding them when they're happening. I'm wondering that as I listen, you know, I can hear that. You, you seem to have this shell that people may not even notice. Yeah. like So certainly I remember when I was on a flight with one of the, the big managers of the company that I was working for and... We had to fly to, I think we were flying to Gladstone for the day. We got off the flight and I, I felt it straight away as soon as we got off the flight because I had to jump in the car with him and drive him to where we were going. And I felt horrified, like I was really, really holding it in. And I didn't want him to see me like this because he's like a CEO and, you know, and I respected him and stuff and just remember driving the car. I was driving and luckily I dropped him off and then, as soon as I dropped him off, I was generally okay. But driving to the site where we were going, I was just, you know, like really fidgety. You know, I was going through a pack of gum, just, yeah, yeah. You know, try to talk and try to be sound. It's like a drunk person that tries to sound like they're sober, you know, when there's a police officer there. It was like that. I was just, yeah, so oh, what do you think of the weather today? You know, like it was just yeah. trying to trying to crap my way through having this freak out without him knowing. Uh, and there's been a number of those occasions where I've, you know, had to hold it together and just really talk myself out of, you know, passing out or fainting. And you said that led to starting to drink to try and suppress some of those feelings. Did you say that that started to work for you initially? Like it was a coping skill for you at the time and it actually worked and then it stopped working. Is that right? So I started drinking prior to that. So once I started having these panic attacks, I stopped drinking altogether. Mm -hmm. My big thing was not feeling sick and any sort of reason that I'd feel sick. So whenever I was going through a bad period of, of being anxious all the time or being depressed, 
I would take the alcohol away because I knew it was just going to add to the thought of, yeah. uh, you know, if, I, if I'm hungover, then I'm going to be hungover for a month, you know, so. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to ask that because that's often, you know, we know that alcohol can have a huge impact negatively on this situation. But I thought I heard you say at the start that you thought it helped and I was like, that's really interesting. Yeah, it did at the start when I didn't really know what I was doing. I yeah, I wanted to go out and do things. So I, I found there was a good period there where red wine just happened to work. It, it calmed me down and I could go out, you know, probably for three or four months where every weekend I'd go out and it was like, okay, maybe I've gotten over this thing and things aren't that bad but then then once i had that panic attack in the car it was kind of a put a stop to that basically whenever i do go through i guess bouts of depression or or anxiety i immediately pull back on alcohol and i guess jump straight back into you know healthy eating and all that sort of stuff but at, at the time when I didn't know much about the condition or about myself i was yeah jump jump on the alcohol it sort of dampens the dampens the pain really well it sounds like you were trying to find anything right like you knew that that's not how you wanted to be so you're like what can i try that's gonna reduce the anxiety reduce the pain reduce the fear and that part of that was becoming isolated from the world and staying in your apartment or staying in your office so that you didn't have to confront these situations that made you feel like shit yeah and you know you can't drink when you're on a a business meeting or you know on a shoot so it's not really a, a, a solution to to drink to to get rid of that sort of feeling. So, so Dan, I know that there's a huge another part to this story, like from where you were in Brisbane. Do you want to take us through a little bit about that? Like I feel like we've got hopefully uh, some understanding around what that must have been like and I just, I mean, I can't imagine what it's like. I've never experienced panic attacks but listening to you, it, it sounds like it's interrupted your everyday life, like so much of your thought process went around it, so much of your planning involved trying to keep yourself safe. Like it was there every moment of every day living with you, beside you, around you, consuming you. Yeah, yeah. It's basically every every point of from the night before what, what to eat for dinner so I, I don't wake up with a bellyache to to, to every step of the day is navigating around what happens if I feel like this today or what can I do today that will make things a little bit better? What can I eat for, for lunch? Who do I eat lunch with? You know, there's a lot of planning that went into every step to avoid a potential panic attack or even just anxiety attack. Like the panic attacks are the worst case scenario, but the general anxiety comes on day to day like it's just a feeling that pops up where you you know now because I know what it is I can sort of push it down and I can sort of deal with it but when you're in your early stages and you don't know what's going on you know it could be a heart attack or there's so, so many things that you think it could be so you have to kind of arrange your life around uh, avoiding these attacks and that basically yeah. becomes a very um it becomes very boring in terms of you really have to monotonize your day so that there's nothing out of the ordinary that can happen. And when you have that happen, that, that brings on being depressed because you get used to the same routine of, you know, not being able to do anything. You, you can't challenge yourself because if it comes up, you don't want to have to deal with that. So basically I went from being agoraphobic to generally socially anxious and you sit there for, for so much time and you become so used to that routine that then you become depressed. And then when you try to get out of that depression by going, all right, I'm going to change things up, you become anxious again. So it's a loop of becoming depressed and then anxious and then depressed and then anxious and it, it goes on forever basically. Yeah. And can you t- 
tell the difference for you between depression and anxiety? Is there a difference oh, yeah. for you? Yeah, yeah. The anxiety is a physical feeling in the body. It's um, you stop going out because you're afraid that you you'll get that feeling, or it, it's like having butterflies all the time, and yeah. it's feeling nauseous all the time. It's it's being hot and bothered, just you know, irritated, and you know, and you don't really want to go out because you you don't want to risk having that feeling. Whereas depression is you've kind of stopped having that feeling. You, you have just kind of accepted that you can't go out, you know, and you just kind of ride it out on the couch and you sleep a lot more and you pull away from people a lot more. You just don't want to talk to people. They're both horrible feelings, but anxiety is definitely more a physical feeling in the body, I think, than depression. For you, yeah. 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 And that depression sounds like it's got a much kind of lower tone to it, you know. It's more doing less but not out of – like the anxiety is doing less because of the hyperarousal, but the, the depression for you it sounds like is like shutting off from the world, being lethargic, like not wanting to try something. Like we constantly hear yeah. in that anxiety space that you're like, how do I do this and how do I be proactive and how do I stop this? But depression is like almost giving up in a way. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's kind of accepting your fate. It's, it's yeah. going, this is the way things are. And then after a while you kind of get used to it and it's like, well, you kind of, wait for something to happen like when you in it for a while you think oh you know i'll get out of this eventually but you end up waiting for something to happen you end up you know some good news that might you know you might win 10 grand or something or you might get given something and it's like oh that's great but you know the thing is that thing never comes like you're never going to get out of it by someone giving you something you have to pull yourself out of it but yeah when you're in it you're quite happy being in it to be honest because it's easy you don't have to do anything. You just lie there and accept what, what is. Yeah. That's a really great description of them both, I think. Often we don't talk, like when I've brought people onto the podcast, they've talked about anxiety as one or depression as one, and it's really nice to hear for you that in your experience they're very different, like they're almost at opposite ends of the spectrum. So what happened from here? Like being in Brisbane, feeling like this, that agoraphobia going into that social anxiety, going into the depression, what happened next? So I'd reached a pretty good place at work. Like I'd been there, I think about a year, managed to get holiday, you know, first time in my life I'd had a chunk of holiday pay sitting there that I, so I could go on a holiday. And I think I was doing pretty well with my anxiety. Like I certainly wasn't depressed, but the anxiety I was dealing with it, I was still having, you know, a few issues and stuff, but nothing to the level that it used to be. So I thought I'd I need to challenge myself to the next challenge. You know, I need to take the next step. The first step was admitting there's something wrong. Second step was actually asking for help and getting it. So I was like, all right, what do I do now? I don't want to go backwards. So I thought I'll go on a holiday. I'll go basically to Alaska. I thought it's the other side of the world. I'll go by myself and I just want to see, see if I can come up against anything that, you know, see how far I've come basically in this, in this journey. So yeah, so I, I booked a trip and jetted off to Alaska for four and a half weeks and it you never looked back basically. It completely changed my life when I got over there just by, I guess, really putting myself out of that comfort zone. It just it blew me away how amazing the experience was, yeah. Listening to that, do you think it was the success of the trip for you, like the the fact that you were able to now be in a new place, meeting like constantly meeting new people, constantly being environment? Like what was it about the trip? When you say that, what was it? Like when you reflect on it? 
So I'd hoped, you know, that the trip would be an easy trip and I'd, you know, just forget about all the anxiety and all that sort of stuff. But it, it wasn't the case. So when I got there, I think I had a panic attack at the at LA airport, like because we, we transferred through LA, um, but knew that I had to keep going. So despite having the panic attack, jumped back on the next plane, went to Alaska. Um, when I got there, I was still anxious. I was still like, oh my God, I'm still here, but you know, I feel horrible. So I think the first night that I got there, I went to the bar at the hotel I was staying at and got plastered drunk, which was a, a bad mistake. But at the time I was like, All right, I need, I just need this. Missed my next flight for the next day. And I thought, I thought this is it. I've, I've screwed it. I thought I've, I've tried, I've got here, but it's too bad. I've, you know, the anxiety is too much. I, I thought I'm going to have to fly home tomorrow. But the next day, so I stayed another night where I was. The next day, I thought, no, I've got to try at least to continue on with this trip. So I jumped on my flight, went down to um, to Juneau, which is the capital of of Alaska, and it's it's a picturesque sort of mountain town, and it's you know right in the mountains. There's snowy mountains in the background. There's huge uh, the fjords, and like it's just one of those beautiful picturesque locations, and. When I got there, I just sort of felt this this sense of calm and you know amazement of of what I was seeing, and then just started just going to places regardless of how I felt. Like I, I still felt a little bit anxious because it was all new and it was all foreign to me, but just sort of made the decision to keep going. And just despite how I felt, I just had to keep pushing through how I felt. So after a few days, I did a number of amazing sort of trips and sort of scenic flights and train rides and and just really realized that despite who I was despite what I was going through I was still like I was seeing the most amazing place in the world and it was just just like just so amazingly beautiful I remember I was on this train that takes you right up into the mountains and every now and then you go through a cave and then you come out on the other side and there are these these valleys that are you know thousands and thousands of years old and huge glaciers and I remember coming around the bend and I'm standing outside the, the train and it's it's not snowing, but it's kind of like, you know, really misty and, and beautiful. And I just I was welling up in tears because I was just so far in the moment. It was just I just felt like I was on another world. And I just it was that moment I was kind of like, this is life. This is what yeah. how life is meant to be experienced. You know, despite all the crap that I've been through, despite trying to go home and, you know, feeling horrible, I, I'd gotten to this point and it was just like this is what it's about. Like, despite all that crap, I'm still able to live this life. You know, literally I was weak at the knees thinking this is just perfect, you know. And was this your first time in your life that you had that experience? Absolutely. Yeah, it's one of those moments. It's hard to forget when you, you know, when your knees buckle because it's you're just seeing something so amazing, freezing cold, It was, but I can picture everything in my head now when I close my eyes. Yeah, of exactly how I was feeling at that moment, and then from that moment on, it was like, from now on, it's it's all or nothing, you know. Like it's if there's a challenge that comes up, I can't let it stop. I have to just get there. Don't think about it. Just do it. So from then on, in in the trip, it was like, all right, I think I'm going to go whitewater rafting. You know, terrified of boats, but I thought, nope, I'll get there and I'll do it. So I got there, booked it in, did it. And, you know, flew over a bunch of mountains, Mount McKinley, like jumped in this light aircraft, do it, you know, straight away, no thinking, no more, you know, analyzing things for safety and, you know, how's it going to make me feel? It was just, no, get there, do it. And that's kind of how I 
got through the rest of the trip was just just enjoy it. And if if you feel bad, ah, too bad. You know, it was just one of those strong things where if you just jump over that side of that fear, you will experience those absolute amazing things that you, you can't experience on the other side of fear. Yeah, that's such an important moment right there. Like your life on this side of the fear versus your life on that side of the fear. Yeah, like I remember there's a there's one of those quotes, I think it's like Kennedy saying something about he tosses the hat over the other side of the fence and, you know, how are they going to get to the moon? And you won't know until you, you go or something like you, you can't plan every moment out. You can't know how to get there before you go. You just kind of have to throw the hat and know that you'll be able to jump the fence and get it. And that's kind of how I've sort of looked at things from now. It's like, I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I'm deciding to get there. And then I'll work out how to get there in between. And did this translate back? Like when you finished the trip and you came back, did you find that you brought all of this with you or did you drop back down? No, no, I I came back and was basically the last 10 years. It's just been this trajectory of going from one thing to the next. So I got back, um, I think within three months, I did my first bungee jump. I was away on a work trip and up in Cairns and I thought, all right, I'll stay for the weekend and do a bungee. Dropped my boss off at the airport, drove straight up to the bungee place, bungee jumped for the first time in my life. And then felt so good that I came back and did it twice in the day, like in the afternoon, which was like, oh man, I was just like so pumped for the energy. And then a couple of months later, there was an opportunity to come up. It's an organization called Red Dust Role Models. And they work with indigenous communities in like really remote uh, Australia. So I got an opportunity to, to do a week in uh, Daly River in Northern Territory, which was basically working with an Indigenous school. We made like a music video and we taught the kids about, you know, healthy eating and stuff like that. Yeah, so I went out to Daly River and worked with these kids for, for a week. And the idea of doing that in the past is like, you know, being in remote anywhere for me was terrifying. So the fact that I was able to get out there and do that was was inspiring. Working with the kids made me really get in touch with my inner child, I guess. And it got me thinking about, you know, I always wanted to be in the film industry, but I'd never thought about being an actor because, you know, being a a character in front of a camera was like, you know, absolutely fearful. So when I got back, I enrolled in an acting class basically and basically studied acting for three years, like film and TV acting, and then sort of got over, like I I got an an immense amount of confidence, self-confidence out of that. And then eventually got to a stage where I couldn't go any further unless I did theatre. And the idea of performing on stage was absolutely terrifying for me. But in the end, it was a, a, a no-brainer. Like I, I kind of had to push myself to that next level of getting over that fear of, of being in, on stage and being in public and being, you know, literally in front of everyone. Being the centre of attention is not what I like. But no, I, I, I found when I was on stage, it was actually even better for my anxiety because you become a character and you forget who you are and you're you're in the character so you forget why am i anxious you're just focused on your lines and who you are as a character so acting gave me another level of of confidence that i'd never never sort of experienced in my life and from there i sort of had a bit of a break where i you know i worked part time as i was acting so i needed to repay the you know, the bills from, from having five years off almost. And all the extracurricular that you're doing, bungee jumping every weekend. <laughs> yeah. So I got back into hiking and, you know, started exercising, doing all these sorts of things and 
basically just kept going from one challenge to the next to try and, I guess, keep that run of, of confidence going. Yeah, just really defining that anxiety is not going to define my life. Like, if, if anything, the anxiety was a, a good thing because it kept me honest. It, it kept me active. If something came up and I was afraid of it, I knew I had to do it. Otherwise, it would become a, a thing in my life that I, I couldn't do. So, you know, I, I'm addicted to karaoke. Like I've done, I've done karaoke every weekend for the past oh, probably seven years. I started karaoke when I was doing stage theatre because I gave up drinking while I was studying theatre because I, I knew I couldn't drink on stage. So the only way to get over my stage fright was to perform every every weekend. So decided to do karaoke as a way to sing every weekend and then eventually loved it. So just kept up with it for, for seven years. Then got to the edge of um, 2017 and decided to do the Kokoda Trek in Papua New Guinea. Wow. That was the next level of ridiculous challenge that I was, again, I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do this and I know it's going to be incredibly hard and terrifying, but it was one of those things where I'm like, this is the next level up from Alaska. So I trained for six or seven months throughout 2018 and then basically, yeah, did the track in September 2018 and that was, again, it, it changed my life in another way. To be honest, it broke me down even further to another level of, I guess, self-awareness and, you know, it, it gave me something else that the previous, you know, 10 years hadn't. Hey, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you are and you'd like to learn more or engage further with our podcast community, you can do this in our Facebook group. Just search for Challenges That Change Us on Facebook or look in the link in our show notes. In this group, we'll be sharing extra content and giving further background to our episodes So I hope to see you there. But for now, let's get back to the episode. It's just incredible listening to you, like your determination to just keep going, like keep striving and that drive. Like did you know you had such a strong drive within you? I think I've always had that grand, that visions of grandeur. I've always thought I don't want to just be an average person that just floats through life. And I felt in my 20s, I think I've lost my 20s. Like I think I, I cheated myself out of my 20s by being anxious and depressed and I didn't do anything. So I think from Alaska onwards, I kind of thought I need to make up for all the crap that I hadn't done because I, I'd looked around and, and would see so many people that had amazing lives and, and had done things and I was jealous and I was like really depressed that I hadn't had that experience. But I also didn't want to just do... The, the average thing that most people do. I just wanted to do stuff that was out there that was, you know, what are those things that you've always said you wanted to do but you just kind of never do? And I guess acting particularly was that because not everyone does acting. A lot of people go overseas and do things but acting was a, as a hard commitment for me to really let myself free and become a kid again and, you know, just be crazy because I've always been such a quiet sort of reserved sort of person and never really put myself out there don't raise my voice it's very much a quiet sort of I'm a quiet guy and then when people found out that I was doing acting like it was just like really like you know people that I work with were just like I just would never have picked that and and then from there I found every time I tell people oh I'm doing this now you know I'm I'm doing Kokoda or I'm doing this it would light people up they'd be people looking at me with jealous eyes like oh I wish I could do that you know so 
I became who I wanted to be, I guess, by doing these things, you know, finding things that challenge me. Kokoda was certainly that. It was very much, I want to do something bigger than myself for once and certainly doing it with a lot of other people as well was a challenge as well, whereas, you know, Alaska was very much alone, whereas Kokoda, I think we had, there was 25 of us plus 25 porters, so there was about 50 of us on the trek and it was all organised by someone else. So it was you're putting your life and your safety in someone else's hands. Kokoda was basically I was supposed to film a documentary. Was that, that was the goal was to go. I'm I'm going to film film my journey on this trek and I guess tell people about the journey, but also tell them about my story and what I've learned. But the trek was actually much more hard than I anticipated. And no filming. <laughs> yeah, it d- didn't really get as much filming as I wanted. And I guess didn't get the outcome that I wanted in terms of I went in thinking, oh, it's going to be like this, this and this. And then when I hit the finish line, I was I was so mentally exhausted and trashed. I actually felt like a failure, to be honest, when I, when I finished the trek. I mean, I've since obviously gone back and gone, you know, you're being an idiot. You, you literally walked it. But the message that I wanted to explain out of the trek, it didn't come out the way that I wanted to. So I guess I haven't haven't sort of fulfilled that documentary yet. 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 I love that word, yet. There were certainly real big lessons coming out of the, the trek, basically. And, Dan, it's just incredible listening to your story and where you are now. And We can hear the energy as you're talking, but people will ask me, do you still live with anxiety and depression today? Yeah, certainly certainly not to the, the same degree that I used to, but it, it comes in waves. I know how to deal with things a lot better now. The world has certainly changed a lot in terms of what people are willing to accept and the support that is around is certainly a lot better. When I finished Kokoda, basically I I had a a major mental breakdown, I think it was about day six out of an eight-day trek, and I couldn't go any further on the trek and I basically had a body had shut down, I was hyperventilating, I'd had a major panic attack and I couldn't go on any further. The feeling that I had was that I'd wasted the last 10 years. Like I felt like I'm back to square one. Like I felt like I've done all this work in the last 10 years and now I've forgotten it. This trek has brought out the worst in me and I felt defeated. And I basically, I burst into tears and I was felt like an absolute failure. And it was some of the best crying I've ever had in my life. Basically, I was with the medic on the on the track and I'd said, what's going on? Like, why can't I do this? And I, I was just a blubbering mess. And he, he set the law down straight. He said, look, you haven't been eating right. You, you're seven days into an eight-day track and you've done this, you've done this, you've done this. And it was, it was all factual-based stuff. It was all like, this is the way things are. You just have to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And basically, I, he was right and I, you know, the emotions of the whole thing was just, I'd felt like the failure and then I felt something inside myself I guess push myself to that next level of of being able to to reach out so obviously I asked him for help which was one but then I I did that thing where people you know people say oh you've got to think of your loved ones and reach inside and find that extra gear you know I've I've never had that like I've never had an experience where I've had to push myself past what I'm capable of so literally was like closing my eyes thinking about my my family, thinking about all the, the memories that have brought up, you know, all the funny times we've had together, just those little things and just really, and that made me cry even harder. It was like, you know, like something out of a movie where you're having flashbacks. It was like that. And it literally gave me an extra lung, an extra pair of lungs. It was like, 
I just felt so empowered by those thoughts. And then so every time I found myself doubting myself or, you know, getting to a, a mountain peak thinking I can't do this, I would reach back into those memories and really think about that and it would give me – it really gave me this extra power on the track. So it made me aware of how powerful – you are when you think about what you've been through, who are there for you and who is surrounding you. And I guess letting letting myself really let go and bore my eyes out, it got me in touch with that human element and really, you know, gave, gave me a power that I just never had. And then I guess I had brought that out of Kokoda was that, you know, it's an extra gear that I've found in my life that when things are really up against the wall, you know, that you can – can look back at where you've come from and you can really focus on how well you've done and who who's been there for the whole time like whether or not physically they're there or if they're there in you know I guess just memories of of your past and what you've been through together I guess and Dan if you think back to the 13 year old boy that was in the country town going to school in the next town over and feeling like he doesn't belong what would you say to him today I guess your brain is more powerful than you, you give it credit for. You create the situation you're in. So I, I had told myself that I didn't fit in all those years ago and that became the way I was. I literally didn't fit in because I'd made it so. So giving yourself more credit for where you are in, the, in your society and your community, it's more on you to create where you sit in that community rather than expecting things to fall into place. So I guess your destiny is in your own hands circumstances aside, it's it's in your own hands, basically. And I think we've heard that through this whole podcast. I've just been listening to you say over and over, like, this isn't working for me. What can I try? I don't know what's going to work, but I'll try something. And then this situation isn't where I want to be right now. What else can I try? And what else? And what else? And what else? And, you know, if someone had said to you 15 years ago that you're going to do Kokoda Trail, like what would be your reaction to that? Oh, which drugs are you giving me to forget forget my trouble so I can do it? Yeah. So, you know, we can really hear that progression over time and how your bandwidth just continued to expand with every experience you had, but you had to push yourself into that experience because it would have been a hell of a lot easier to sit on your couch at home. Absolutely. The last two years, like the COVID two years have been really difficult because – literally haven't been able to to jump out of the home situation yeah or out of airplanes or off a bridge with the yeah. bungee jumping or <laughs> yeah so the, the problem that i've had was that yeah i had this upward trajectory that kind of just went bam mm. and for two years it's it's been nowhere so that's where i've sort of fallen back into that zone of oh, i've got to start again kind of thing like obviously it's certainly not starting from the low point but the last two years have certainly forced me to to reflect on what I have done in the last 10 prior to that because I'm sure everyone's feeling the same. Like if you've been going on this amazing journey and all of a sudden you're stuck at home for two years, of course you're going to lose a lot of that momentum. But I guess, you know, I think the world's obviously opening up a bit now and you've got to find ways to keep going and keep moving forward. Otherwise, it's so easy to fall back into you know, old routines and old habits. And Dan, before we finish up today, I'm wondering whether is there something when you look back across all of this experience that you've gained? I think self-reflection is really important and being able to know that you're not okay and having the power to take action to deal with things, you know, rather than sitting there stewing on things, waiting for something to happen. 
knowing that you're not happy, knowing that you have the power to really change that by, by taking action is, that's the power I guess I've, I've got. And I love to finish the podcast with a question. What in your world or who in your world truly makes you belly laugh? Like giggle juice on the floor, can't stop laughing, and you're not allowed to say you at karaoke. No, no. I was going to say a comedian, but it's actually actually hanging out with my family. My family lives in Adelaide and I'm up in Brisbane. And every now and then we'll get together and generally at my sister's house, We'll all sit around in the lounge room or, you know, around the kitchen table having dinner and there's always an off-coloured joke or a a flashback to a memory of the past and we genuinely sit there in tears laughing, you know, for a good 20 minutes. It always happens. Like my family, when we get together, we always share like the most crazy laughs and they're always hilarious. It's such a beautiful thing, isn't it, when everyone in the room is laughing, you know, like the whole table's giggling at something and you always often forget even what you're giggling at in the first place, but it's such a, yeah, even talking about it makes me smile. Yeah, it's it's usually a story about my dad throwing an exhaust or something to do with like my dad when he was younger, the car breaking down or something. It's usually something crazy and it ends up talking about dad and the exhaust and everyone just ends up in tears. (laughs) Well, if anyone's listening to this from your family, I bet they've got a big smile on their face Uh, now. Absolutely. Dan, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for coming on. Um, Dan and I didn't know each other and I just, I cannot imagine what it would have been like to come on here and meet someone for the first time and open up about your story. But I think it's going to be invaluable to so many of our listeners. So thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a, it's been a great chat. Wow. What a story. I have never met Dan and I had no idea where or what our conversation was going to be till today. I don't know about you, but I feel so inspired to go out and try new things. Truth be told, I had coffee with my hubby after the episode and slipped into the conversation that maybe we could do the Kokoda Trail next year. He did look at me wide-eyed and reminded me that I have pots. However, Dan's story was so inspiring that my first thought was, anything's possible. I really hope that for each and every one of you out there that you took something away from this. Dan spoke out for the first time. We need to rally around him and let him know our takeaways. The best way we can do this is pop it in one of the posts in Challenges That Changes Facebook community, or you can make your own post in that group as well. Dan has no idea how much his story could change lives. Dan and I also spoke about a charity once we'd stopped the recording. It's called Mates in Construction. It was established in 2008 to reduce high levels of suicide among Australian construction workers. Mates in Constructions provides suicide prevention through community development programs on site and by supporting workers in need through case management and with a 24-7 helpline. They serve the construction industry in Queensland, Northern Territory, New South Wales, South Australia, Western Australia, the energy industry in Queensland and New South Wales, and nationally to the mining industry. So jump on and check them out. Also, Lifeline is available 141114 if you want to talk to someone after this episode. There is help out there. You don't need to go at it alone. Next week, we have Alan Parker, an international negotiator. He is one of 11 in the entire world that does what he does. And we'll be exploring where science meets psychology. 
This is an episode not to be missed and I hope that you all have the best week and I'm really looking forward to Monday. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode. Oh,